My alarm went off. Christmas morning, I jumped out of bed and sensed something was different. I put on my robe and went down the hall. The Christmas tree was gone. This is not a funny joke. Where would all the Christmas decorations go? In the family room, every gift that had been so beautifully wrapped under that tree had disappeared. This can't be a joke. My presents aren't worth stealing. When I went to bed last night, there were dozens of presents under that tree. I turned on the TV. Good morning, America! They were another news story talking about another political scandal. After many minutes, I realized no mention of Christmas, no sign of Christmas. Bizarre! I felt like I was in the twilight zone. I went to the phone and called my son. I wanted to be the first to wish my grandchildren Merry Christmas. He answered the phone and I exclaimed, Merry Christmas! What? he asked. I said, Merry Christmas! Dad, what do you mean Merry Christmas? Sounded like I just wakened him from a coma. It's Christmas Day, son, I replied. I don't know what you're talking about. What is Christmas Day? He asked in an aggravated tone. I stood at the kitchen table, staring at my phone, completely baffled. Son, what's the matter with you? You know what Christmas Day is. This is the day Jesus was born. Dad, I don't know anybody named Jesus. Why are you calling me so early? You never call me this early. I knew I hadn't lost my mind. This was my house. This was my son's voice. I hung up the phone without even saying goodbye. I didn't know what to do. I reached around for my Bible and morning devotional. Gone. Who moved my Bible? I stood up, began to hunt around for my Bible. Nowhere to be found. Not only that, but none of my Christian books and CDs, none of them were there. I decided to call Pastor. Maybe he could help me figure out what was going on. Speed dial. I'm sorry, this number is not in use. Please check your number and dial again. I picked up my laptop. Click Liberty Heights. Error. Firefox can't find this server at libertyheights.org. I googled two dozen Christian-related keywords. Nothing. I googled Jesus. Zero search results found. I sat back in my chair and just cried. If I had not come. So in John chapter 15, Jesus is teaching the disciples and he's actually actually walking through with them the fact that the world hates him and the world will hate him for who he is and who he represents. And he says, by association, you, the disciples, the world will hate you, too. And so right in the middle of John chapter 15 and verse 22, Jesus poses this thought, says, if I had not come. Now, it's just a fragment of a verse, uh, just a small little thought. We need to be careful not to take it out of context. But Jesus is inviting us to consider the possibility of what the world would be like if Christ had not come. And so we saw the presentation this morning, just now, of what uh, this season may look like if Christ had not come. 
walk through me, uh, walk through with me through these other things that uh, we wouldn't experience, we wouldn't know about if Christ had not come. If Christ had not come, we would not have the New Testament. The Bible would have ended the last with the last verse in Malachi, which says, "Lest I come and strike the earth." How's that for a picture of hope? Psalm 23 becomes nothing more than a beautifully worded poem because the hidden meaning of what it means to have a relationship with the good shepherd is not obvious to us. Isaiah 53 becomes as hard for us to understand as it was for the Ethiopian eunuch. If Christ had not come, there'd be no angels proclaiming Jesus' birth, no wise men, no need of a star. Mary and Martha would have continued to grieve the death of their brother Lazarus and the leper would have died of leprosy. There'd been no John the Baptist. There'd been no Zacchaeus. There wouldn't be a hill far away and an old rugged cross. There wouldn't be a fountain filled with blood. There would be no resurrection, only our own graves. If Christ had not come, we wouldn't be here this morning. There would be no church. There'd be no Martin Luther. There'd be no John Wesley. If Christ had not come, we wouldn't have passages of Scripture that we quote to those in time of need. We'd have no John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We'd have no cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. We'd have no ask and you shall receive. It'd be a pretty miserable world. But here's the good news. Good news is that it's December 1st, and for the next 25 days, we plan on celebrating the fact that Christ did come, that God did send his son, that the world did have the opportunity to meet Jesus. I'm going to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, excuse me, Galatians chapter 4. Now, if you're walking through the Christmas experience, the drama series with us, then Galatians chapter 4 is probably not a crazy uh, place to start for you. But if you haven't been walking through the series, you're going to say, wait a minute, a, a Christmas message from Galatians. Well, bear with me, uh, play along. Uh, let's start in chapter 4. Actually, let's back up just a couple verses and catch uh, the beginning of this thought in chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all. But it is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Verse 3, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Well, this passage of Scripture in your Bible, you may have a heading, and it may say something like, Sons of God, or Sons and Heirs. And it's really a beautiful passage as it describes what it means that we get saved and baptized into God's family and we become as if we're his adopted children. So you say, okay, Chris, what's this have to do with Christmas? Look back at verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come, we we probably don't use that language very often in our uh, modern day English. Uh, But to the Greeks, this language was originally written in. uh, It was a very picturesque, descriptive uh, phrase that they would have easily understood. It's the word picture of an apple that's so ripe that when you go to pick it, it falls off right in your hand. 
Or better yet, it's the picture of um, a mom-to-be, a pregnant mom-to-be. And it's just at that moment when the baby is to be born, the fullness of time. So for Shannon and I, the fullness of time, uh, we thought... Uh, came about five o'clock in the morning. She had been having contractions all day long. And so at five o'clock, they were finally close enough that we needed to go to the hospital. So I loaded us in the Taurus and we uh, we I drove like an idiot down I-75 to get to the hospital, only to find out that the fullness of time for us was not for another 12 or 14 hours. But you get the point. It describes that moment in history when all the things were in place, when all the pieces were on the board, that one moment when the stage was perfectly set, not one moment Too early, not one moment too late, God sent forth His Son. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Brad took the two Pastor Sean's and myself down to a preaching seminar uh, down at Southern Seminary in Louisville. And it was uh, at one point we walked through a workshop and they gave us the secret to building a sermon. So I'm going to share it with you this morning. And so if you you guys ever need to get up and uh, preach a sermon, you need these three things. You need the what, you need the so what, and you need the now what? Okay, so those are the three most, most important parts. Actually, Pastor Brad has taught me this. Uh, those are the things that you need. So that's the what. That in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. That He did send Jesus. The Bible doesn't end at Malachi. It continues through Matthew and the rest of the New Testament. Psalm 23 is more than just a pretty poem. We understand that Isaiah 53 is pointing ahead to a Savior. There were angels and wise men and a star in the east. And here's the best part. We get to sing that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. We get to experience Christmas. So what was the first mention, the first glimpse of Christmas, the first promise of Christmas? If we were to turn all the way back to Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we'll put the words on the screen. The seed of the woman will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is God actually talking to the serpent, Satan. And he's saying the seed of the woman, who is Jesus, will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. You will do everything in your earthly power during his earthly ministry to disrupt what he has going on. It was the first glimpse, it was the first look, the first promise of a Savior to come. Here's what's interesting about this prophecy as I was studying this week. Uh, When Scripture typically speaks of an offspring, uh, it usually speaks with regard to the seed of a man. But in this case... This prophecy, it says, the seed of a woman. Why? If we look back, Galatians chapter 4, it says that Jesus, in the fullness of time, would be born of a woman. So we know the story. Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. There was not a biological father involved. God's pointing ahead to a time when he's going to introduce a Savior to mankind. But here's the deal. Mankind had to wait thousands of years for that promise. You ever notice when you look backwards at time... Uh, time passes so much quicker when you look in the rearview mirror. Uh, for those of you who uh, maybe have teenagers and uh, the thought that they'll ever leave the house, um, it, it's elusive. But when you look backwards, it seems like they just came home from the hospital yesterday. I, uh, I've told the story before. I think I've shared it in a sermon before. Uh, um, Shannon and I, when we were building a habit house built, we stayed uh, with my in-laws. And we stayed in their basement. And looking backwards, it was just five short months. But at the time, I think they thought we'd never leave. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, we decided that we were, our house had closed and we were going to delay things a week so that we could go into our house and paint. You know, everything was the builder grade, the standard white. And so we were going to spend a week painting before we moved in. 
My mother-in-law said, nuh-uh, uh, you're out of here. Because they thought that time was never going to come when we would leave. As, if we were to look back and do a study of the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament is a, is a big, gigantic lesson in the fact of waiting on God's promises. We have Abraham that's waiting on the promise that he's going to birth an immeasurable nation. We have the children of Israel that are in uh, slavery to the Egyptians, waiting for God's promise of the promised land. And then when they finally escape slavery, the 40 years of wandering in the desert and all that came from having to enter the promised land and the wars and the battles and the heartache that came from trying to enter and claim this thing that God had promised to them. And then we see later that they wanted a king and they had to wait for a king. And then they were taken into captivity and they were... The book of Daniel is a beautiful story of being in captivity and looking at and exploring God's promise for the future. You can only begin to imagine that they uh, probably asked the question quite frequently, is God ever going to honor His promise? So imagine what it was like for the Jews who were looking forward to a, to a Savior. So if you take your Bible, those of you that have uh, an actual Bible with you this morning, this won't work if you have an iPad. Uh, we tried it in the first service, it didn't work. But if you turn to the last book of Malachi, uh, the last book of the Old Testament, rather, Malachi, uh, you might have to look in your index. There's some crazy named books right in front of it. It's Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and then it comes to Malachi. And I cheated. I, uh, it's on page 808 in my Bible. So Malachi, last passage in the Old Testament, and God has given this warning that says, uh, follow the instructions that I gave Moses, and if you don't, I'm going to come and strike, strike the land. So then turn one page over. And we have Matthew. That's the New Testament. And yours probably starts like mine. It says, uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ is the historical record. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, what am I getting at? That white piece of paper that's in between. Do you have that in your Bible? Guess how much time that represents. See, we just flip it real quick like that. And 400 years just passed. 400 years of silence. 400 years of waiting for God's promise to come true and hearing nothing. God wasn't talking. Jesus hadn't come yet. Uh, prophecy was not in existence anymore. It was a quiet, silent time. For thousands of years, this nation had waited for the promise of a Savior. And now things go silent. And imagine how difficult it was, especially that period right before Jesus was born. They were under the persecution of, first it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks, finally it was the Romans. Uh, it was a miserable time of waiting for Christ to be born. So it's a little difficult probably to look backwards um, with regard to their perspective, with regard to children of Israel. And so let's make it real. Uh, let me tell you a story about myself. Maybe we'll... Uh, and stir up some things that are some difficulties that you've had or are walking through right now. Testimony of coming to Liberty Heights Church. The 15 years that I spent before coming on staff here at Liberty Heights Church. Many of you know, uh, and if you don't, it probably answers a lot of questions. I'm a pastor's kid and I uh, grew up in the home of a preacher. But I never felt the desire. I never felt the calling to go into the full-time Christian ministry. Uh, I don't think that I missed anything. I think... Um, I, I didn't have that pressure. It wasn't something that I wrestled through. And so I went to Cedarville University. And while I did get a, a degree in Bible, I also got a degree in business. And so when I graduated, I went out and got a job in the real world. Okay. And for 15 years, 
Uh, made a good living, put food on the table, but was miserable almost every day. Um, I was making a list. Uh, I was going back through all the things, all the things that I've done, all the places that I've worked. I've been in the uh, retail industry. I've been in the food industry. I've been in the pharmaceutical industry. I've been in the construction industry. I've worked in sales. I've worked in management. I've worked in finance. I've worked in operations. And I've done all these things and never gave thought to the fact that maybe God was doing something in my life to prepare me for the day when maybe I'd have a job where I need to wear about eight different hats. The only thing that I could ever walk through is the fact that I was miserable. And I dreaded the thought of going to sleep at night because that meant that the next morning I was going to have to wake up and go to work. Never gave thought to the fact that God had something that he was preparing me for. I was just in too patient, too impatient to get there. So now fast forward a couple years. And I'm here on staff uh, at Liberty Heights. I love what I do. I love the guys that I work with. I, I love the opportunities to get up and teach. I love all the things that go on around the building that I get to take care of. Uh, I love the fact that I work with my wife. I love the fact that I work so close. I love the fact that I get to uh, be around my kids all the time. Everything is wonderful. There is one thing. And so I brought some pictures to uh, illustrate this this morning. One thing that makes my life miserable around here and it's the tension that comes from working for a guy who thinks he looks. Let me show this picture. So this is your pastor, Brad, and uh, this is what he looks like. OK, and I have blurred the faces of the to protect the innocent. Um, but this is this is what we live with. Right. Here's the tension. The tension comes from the fact that he thinks he looks like this. So you guys have heard it every week. He stands up and says how lucky you guys are to have a pastor as handsome as him. That really is Pastor Brad. OK, that's not a picture out of a magazine. Uh, that's your Pastor Brad 15 years ago um, back in the day. So you can understand the misery that I have and the tension that comes from, uh, you know, working with this guy day to day. I'm la- laugh and joke about the fact that, hey, listen, that's the worst thing I got going. It's a lot of fun around here and uh, it's a lot of fun to be in the middle of what God's doing here at Liberty Heights Church. The fact is, we laugh and we joke about it a little bit, um, but I was miserable. I still contend that I was in the middle of God's will. I was doing exactly what he wanted me to do. It's evident looking backwards, but I just couldn't hurry up and get there fast enough. We have this term in our language that we use, this phrase. Uh, it doesn't translate well into other cultures or other languages. It's hurry up and wait. And we, we can't even slow down and wait. We have to hurry up and wait. And when it comes to even God and his promises, we act the same way. We just don't have time to wait for anything. And so I'm here trying to poke fun at this and and laugh and and, um, smile about this. But the fact is, is that some of you are walking through some tough times and it feels like God's never going to answer his promises. And it's difficult. It's painful. It hurts. Um, In the earlier service, we had a couple that every single week... They submit a prayer request to the staff, asking the staff to pray for their unsaved adult children every single week. We have people in here today that desire to have children. We have people in here today that have, uh, are going through the adoption process and are waiting on God, and it seems like He's not answering their prayers. Parents, children with special needs, thoughts of the future have them worried sick. Maybe you're tired of being single. Maybe you're tired of 
working two jobs. You look forward to the day when you have just one job. Or maybe you just wish that you had a job. Perhaps you're battling a disease or an illness and you're waiting on God's healing. You probably have a better understanding than anybody that waiting on God is not easy. In fourth grade, uh, my teacher, who was also my mother, and that's another story we'll stay for another day, but my mom read, uh, still reads to this day all of her classes, um, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. She's been doing it for 35 years. And C.S. Lewis wrote the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in it, there are four children, and they get transported to this land called Narnia. And it's being ruled by a white witch. Now, Lucy, who's the youngest of the four kids, this is what she says about the white witch and what she has done. She says she has cast an enchantment over the whole country so that it is always winter and never Christmas. That was the curse that the white witch had put on Narnia. The whole country is always winter and never Christmas. And is that your testimony this morning? That it's always winter and it's never Christmas. Have you prayed and prayed and prayed to the point where heaven seems silent? Maybe you've prayed to the point where you begin to wonder if God even hears you. Or maybe you're at the point where Satan has started to plant those thoughts in your mind that maybe there isn't even a God. So here's the good news. This is time for the so what, okay? Why are you telling me all this? I'm telling you all this because God's timing is perfect. You may have heard the expression that God is rarely early, but he's never late. So remember all those years that we just talked about, the white pages between Malachi and Matthew? That period of time was called the intertestament period, but we also refer to that as the silent years. So let's take a look at those silent years. I want to play a scene from the Christmas experience drama to look back in our rearview mirror at what God was really doing, how he was preparing the world for the birth of Jesus. Here's some of what happened during those 400 years of silence. The Persian Empire was expanding its territory and they started getting a little too close to the Greeks. So Philip of Macedon united the Greeks and led them in battle against the Persians. After Philip's death, his son Alexander took over. This was probably around 350 years before Jesus was born. We know him as Alexander the Great because he conquered the entire known world in about 12 years. As a result of Alexander's influence, the world became Greek in both thought and language, and for the first time since the Tower of Babel, the world was united by a single language. Everyone spoke a little Greek. And so God was making a way for Jesus to be born into a world where everyone spoke the same language. Another reason this was so important was because the Greeks had the Old Testament scriptures, which were written in Hebrew, translated into Greek in 280 B.C. So the whole world could now learn for themselves about the promises of a Messiah coming. It was also the right time philosophically. Because of the Greek's influence, most people were accustomed to the Socratic method of learning. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, they taught people to learn by questioning. And so there were a lot of questions being asked without many answers. Then, in 63 BC, the Romans conquered the Greeks and they took over the duties of ruling the world. And they ruled over Israel with an iron fist. They oppressed and exploited the Jewish people. They violently put down all opposition. And because of this abuse, the Jewish people were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. If this would not have happened, Christianity would have had a hard time getting out of Israel. 
but the Romans' power also had another effect. Caesar Augustus was on the throne, and during the lifetime of Jesus, and under his rule, peace came to the Roman Empire. In fact, for the next two centuries, there was peace. This unique time in history is known as the Pax Romana. It's really the only window, significant window, in human history where there was world peace. Because of this peace, travel was completely changed. Roads were built, travel became common. In fact, a type of highway patrol was even established. And all of this made it just the right time for Jesus to be born and for the gospel message to spread. You see what God was doing. He was orchestrating all the pieces in just the right way so that Jesus would come at just the right time. See, we learn from the Christmas narrative that God's timing can be trusted. See, it wasn't like God went on this big extended vacation and for several thousand years he was not paying any attention and then suddenly he remembered, ah, let's send Jesus down to earth. No, we can look backwards and see that God was preparing the world for the introduction of Jesus. So for those of us that are living in that white page between Malachi and Matthew, waiting for God to answer our prayers, there's an important truth as we look backwards to the rearview mirror of history that we can remember. We can look at the, how God was orchestrating the political and the travel and the language conditions so at just the right time the world could be changed by Jesus. But the difficulty is, and the reality of it is, is that it can be difficult to see God's hand when you're right in the middle of it. So now what? What's the seemingly natural way? I was thinking about that a lot this week. What's the natural way that our body reacts to waiting? So I'm, I'm waiting in the car, waiting for the kids to get in it so that we can be, begin the long drive across the parking lot to church. And I'm getting anxious, okay? Uh, the anxiety starts to creep in as I'm waiting for something. It's the natural manifestation of waiting is anxiety. It's the ugly side of waiting. So the answer here, I think, we're going to have to turn to another um, non-Christmas passage. So we're going to turn to Philippians. If you allow me to leave the context of Christmas for just a moment, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul reminds us here to be anxious for nothing, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, let your requests be made known to God. So what are you saying? That we're supposed to pray about it? Yeah. But how many of you, when you pray for something, you're probably a little like me. Like, okay, God, this is what I need, and this is when I need it, and this is how I'd like it, and so uh, probably best be served if you bring it to me quickly. Those aren't words that we probably actually use, but God ultimately knows our attitude. So how do we, how do we protect ourselves from praying like this, from being the, the whiny little children that, uh, that we loathe? The fact is, is that I left two words out of that passage Uh, Philippians 4, verse 6, some of you might have caught this. It actually says, be anxious for nothing, but in every situation, by by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. I left out that part, with thanksgiving. A lot of you have heard me talking about uh, the the book that our life group's walking through. It's called The Prayer Coach. In fact, several life groups have been walking through it, and uh, more than likely, most of your life groups will walk through it at some point next year. And the author talks about this type of prayer with thanksgiving. He calls it thank you therapy. And listen what he, what he says. He says, when we fail to present our request to God with thanksgiving, that our anxieties are more likely to increase than to decrease. 
And so if we leave those two little words out and that's how we pray, pray, our prayers actually take us to a greater state of panic and a greater level of anxiety. So how can we pray with thanksgiving? Let me give you two different things that are part of uh, prayers with thanksgiving. Two different things that are part of this thank you therapy as taught in this book called The Prayer Coach. The first is that you have to be creative. Let me give you an example here of what I'm talking about. Uh, most of you know that one of my roles here is to uh, administer the budget. I help put the budget out at the beginning of the year and then we track it all through the year as uh, our staff is spending too much or not enough money's coming in. It's when I cut up the, cut up the credit cards and um, I, I take care of all that throughout the year. And did you know that it, we have to raise almost $2 million a year to do what we do here at Liberty Heights Church, to take care of our campus and our buildings and our facilities, to take care of the ministry uh, to pay for the ministry that goes on here, to, to take care of the, the salaries of the, the pastors and the ministry staff, um, to partner with our international mission partners, to partner with our community partners, to spread the name of Jesus here locally. Ain't a lot of money. And if we go two or three weeks and the offerings are light, because I know exactly what we need right down to the penny every single week, and so you go a couple weeks and the offerings are light, I'm not going to lie, uh, things start to get a little anxious. And I confess getting a little worried. But if I pray about this matter without adding the appropriate amount of thanksgiving, then my agitation just goes up. So how do I pray creatively? How does a pastor pray creatively when you're thousands of dollars behind? So here are some ways that I can express thanksgiving in the midst of this prayer. I can thank God for the fact that for almost the four years that Brad has been here, that we have never finished the year in the red. I can thank him for the fact that in that same time, we've never been late in paying our monthly mortgage. I can thank him for the fact that we have never failed to make payroll. I can thank him for all the faithful friends that are here each week that generously invest in what God's doing here at Liberty Heights Church. I can thank him for a pastor who not only teaches generosity, but models it in his personal life. I can thank him for our admin team who creatively manages our budget with care and skill and integrity. I can thank him for the retired couple that went back to work so that they can invest more in the kingdom through Liberty Heights Church. So if you see what I mean, you have to be creative. In fact, in our life group, uh, we did this exercise where somebody uh, gave one of their uh, prayer requests that was filled with some anxiety. It was about one of their children. And we put it up on the board and we actually brainstormed as a group exactly how this person could be thankful in the midst of of this difficulty. So you have to be creative. The other thing to uh, thank you therapy is that you have to be deliberate. You have to make yourself apply thank you therapy every time you're presenting a troubling request to God. It's not easy and it's not natural and so you have to make it a habit. You have to just get in the habit of doing it. Let me give you an example of what this looks like uh, using a family right here that many of you know here at Liberty Heights Church. I want you to meet the Lucas family. This is Jeremy and Stephanie and their children. That's Maddie and Ethan and Micah. And then that's Micah off to the side as well. So I've asked their permission to share their story. Many of you have been praying for them and their family, their parents, um, Ted and Sharon Smith. Stephanie grew up here at Liberty Heights Church. And so we've just been praying for this family as they've been walking through this tough time with baby Micah. Uh, a few weeks ago in October, uh, Stephanie had noticed a strange spot on Micah's leg. Over the past, uh, the course of the past several weeks, Micah's had x-rays and MRIs and then recently had a biopsy on this mass. And this past week, 
they receive the devastating news that this mass is cancerous tumor. They're calling it infantile fibrosarcoma. In fact, this coming Tuesday, Michael will actually have a PET scan. And then almost immediately, uh, they'll determine what type of drugs to use and he'll have a central line inserted and very quickly begin chemotherapy. So many of us have been praying for this family. And when I got the news that, in fact, it, it was bad news, um, as I was walking through the email that Stephanie had sent, it literally just took, it took my breath away, imagining what it would be like. So fast forward a couple days, Thanksgiving morning, my family and I are uh, traveling up to Cleveland area to um, celebrate Thanksgiving with my family. And my phone dings, uh, tells me that I have a Facebook message, that somebody's posted a Facebook message. So I give the phone to Shannon, of course, because I'm a good driver and I don't look at it while I'm driving. And um, there was a Facebook post from Sharon. Sharon is Stephanie's mom and Micah's grandma. This is what her Facebook post said on Thanksgiving morning. She said, today I'm giving thanks for my family and that we now have answers about Micah. Even though the news is hard, God has a plan. As I look back over the last couple of years, God has been, pre- been preparing us and putting people in our lives that have walked this road. We are not alone on this new journey. And then she quoted the lyrics uh, from the praise song, I will praise you in the storm. Let me promise you that this type of thanksgiving is deliberate. It's not natural. It doesn't come easy. It's hard to say this. It's hard to even talk about it. It's hard to imagine what they're walking through. And yet this was her testimony. In fact, this is exactly what Paul meant when he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And when you do this, what happens? We have the promise of verse 7 that follows. It says, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your Bible might say the peace that passes understanding. And sometimes we throw that term around and like God's going to give you the peace that passes understanding and we don't even realize the context for which it was originally written. The context is, it's saying when you pray with thanksgiving, that then God will come and your anxiety-induced prayers, that God will wrap them and guard them with this peace that doesn't make any sense. This peace that causes you to get up on Thanksgiving morning and make this post that says, I thank God that we finally have answers. And even though the answers are difficult, I praise Him for how He's orchestrated all this and already begin to see His hand at work. This is what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he said, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Why do you have hope? You have hope because you trust God's promises. And the world notices this. And it's different. And it's weird. And it's, they recognize that something doesn't quite line up with their theology. That how could you in the midst of all this pain, in the midst of getting these wrong answers, and you, you say, thank God? That's crazy. But that's how the world knows who you are. As you walk through a time where maybe your spouse has left you or your children aren't walking with the Lord or there's some difficult thing in your life, you're battling another type of disease similar to what we're talking about. And yet people step back and say in the midst of all this, this person is joyful? That's nuts. That's exactly what the Bible's talking about here. That's exactly what it means when it says The peace that passes understanding. The peace that transcends understanding. 
It's part of thank you therapy. Thank you therapy that's creative, that's deliberate. It'll prevent you from developing a twisted or deformed spirit. Your heart and your mind will be well guarded. Peace of God. In closing, a few minutes ago, I shared my testimony, and I, I, I tell you, right, I, I felt like I was right middle in the smack, smack dab middle of God's will, and yet I was miserable. Why? I was praying. I was letting my petitions be known. I was letting God know how miserable I was. But I, I was never doing it with any amount of thanksgiving. And so God didn't grant me the joy of being, having peace because I wasn't praying right. It's my prayer this Christmas that you'll uh, be reminded of God's promises and His timing. And if you're experiencing winter in your life right now, that you'll look backwards at God's promises, that you'll look backwards at how God orchestrated the timing of the introduction of Jesus to this world. You'll remember the promises Christmas is to come at just the right time. God sent His Son. And while waiting on God is never easy, we see today that His timing is perfect. And trust me, waiting on God is always worth it. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me for just a few moments.